ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, paroles granted to one of the men involved in South Australia's infamous Snowtown murders as the state government tries to rush through new laws to monitor those who've served their time. Also, the embattled CEO of Woolworths announces his retirement under intense public pressure. But are we falling into a culture of corporate scapegoating? And the clothing industry given an ultimatum, get better at recycling or face tough new laws. A lot of it's bought online and it's so cheap, people don't think twice about it. Might wear it once or not at all and then they donate it to us. Everything about it is just rubbish. Thanks for your company. One of the men involved in South Australia's Bodies in the Barrels killings has been granted parole and will soon be released and from May could face no further supervision in the community. The discovery of bodies in a Snowtown bank vault 25 years ago shocked the nation and revealed a spate of murders across Outer Adelaide and regional South Australia. The parole board says Mark Ray Hayden is at low risk of reoffending, but his looming release has prompted the state government to attempt to rush through laws that would make it easier to monitor offenders after they've served their sentence. Angus Randall reports. Mark Ray Hayden has spent the last 25 years in prison for assisting in Australia's worst serial killings. He'll soon be released on parole. SA Parole Board presiding member Francis Nelson KC says he's at low risk of reoffending. His institutional behaviour has been excellent throughout his incarceration. His uh, compliance with prison rules and regulations has been such that we're confident he will comply with parole conditions. Mark Hayden was an associate of Bodies in the Barrels ringleader John Bunting. He was convicted of helping to store some of the bodies but was not convicted of murder. He co-signed the lease on the Snowtown bank vault where several of the bodies were found in 1999. He'll first be moved to a pre-release centre, essentially a low-security prison. Once he's in the community, he'll be subject to electronic monitoring and a curfew, will need to report in regularly and can have no contact with the victims or the media. Francis Nelson says some of these parole conditions are a direct reaction to the media attention swirling around the case. We've placed electronic monitoring as a condition, not because we think it's really necessary, from his perspective, but it will give some reassurance to the community given the notoriety of his offences uh, and the um, fact that it's attracted so much publicity. In a rare insight, Francis Nelson says killer John Bunting, who will die in prison, has shown no remorse. I think Mr Bunting has no empathy at all. He has no insight into his offending. I think he's quite proud of being a serial killer. He's completely indifferent to the effect that his crimes have had on anyone else. Sarah Quick is the South Australian Commissioner for Victims' Rights. She's in the process of providing victims with information about the Parole Board's decision. Over time they've become more accepting of the idea that he will be released and that they've slowly adjusting to the concept that he will be living in the community in the near future. Uh, So their distress levels aren't as great as they have been in the past. But having said that, 
Uh, there are certainly some victims who are distressed by the fact that he will be released. Under current SA laws, all of Mark Hayden's parole conditions will expire when his full sentence ends in May. The state government wants to keep an eye on him. Attorney-General Kyam Ma has applied to the Supreme Court to extend his supervision. The government before this decision has already lodged an application with the Supreme Court for an extended supervision order that has the potential to see further conditions placed beyond the May 20th release date. Uh, as we announced earlier this week, it is our position as a government that Mr Hayden meets the test as a serious violent offender in the High Risk Offenders Act. The state government can ask the Supreme Court to extend a supervision order for high-risk offenders. Whether Mark Hayden, as an accomplice to murder, can meet that threshold is up to the courts. The government is quickly changing the rules to include those who assist a violent offender after the offence as high risk. It announced the proposal on Monday, legislation passed the lower house yesterday and is expected to pass the upper house tomorrow. Kaya Ma says the speed is justified. This legislation was about fixing what we saw as a gap in the high-risk offender scheme. The case of Mr Hayden shone a light on that gap. Dr Simone Deegan is a senior lecturer in criminology and law at Flinders University. She says eventually a sentence has to come to an end. The parole system is not about removing all risk, but rather it's about managing what is an acceptable level of risk. The public obviously has concerns when people are released about whether an individual can ever be trusted to live safely in the community again. She's worked with life sentence prisoners and says the safety of the public has to be balanced alongside the rehabilitation of the offender. I can tell you that one of the strongest motivators for long-term prisoners is hope and certainty. Um, if there's obviously strong evidence that someone continues to be a danger to society, that's a different matter. But that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, the parole board, to my knowledge, is saying that the prisoner has been a model prisoner. Indeterminate sentencing or sentencing that never ends is not actually helpful and it's actually counterproductive. Because when you've got someone who's doing well and the sentence never ends and the monitoring never ends, it actually prevents people from being normal and doing what we want them to do. Mark Hayden's parole expires in May. Killers John Bunting and Robert Wagner will spend life in prison. Killer James Vlasakis served as a key witness during the murder trials and will be eligible for parole next year. Angus Randall there. Another industry leader is stepping down in the face of intense public pressure and scrutiny. The Woolworths boss, Brad Banducci, announced his retirement today after eight years in the top job. It follows the early exits of RBA Governor Phil Lowe and Qantas CEO Alan Joyce. Now, there may not be much sympathy for wealthy corporate bosses who preside over decisions that inflict financial pain on the rest of us, especially in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis. But are we unfairly scapegoating corporate leaders and making them sacrificial lambs for a much wider economic problem? Reporter David Taylor takes a look. It's been one of those weeks for Woolworths boss Brad Banducci, kicking off with a train wreck interview on the ABC's Four Corners about competition among Australian supermarkets. It is an incredibly competitive market. The risk people have is... I'm sorry, the former head of the Competition Commission says... His words are that we have... By the way, I, I don't think you would impugn his integrity and his understanding of competition law. I'm just saying the world has got much more competitive. He retired 18 months ago. He's not. Okay, let's. Well, can we take that out? Is that okay? 
Here's former ACCC chair Rod Sims' response a short time later. We, I think, by definition, have a very concentrated market, uh, supermarket sector. I really don't think you can deny that we do. You can argue about its implications, but you can't deny we do. Speaking today at the announcement of his retirement, which won't take effect till September, Brad Banducci declared it's simply time for him to leave. I believe in, I do believe in the circle of life. Um, it's eight years since I got this privilege and kind of felt right to close that circle the way it started. Today, Woolworths posted a half-year loss of $781 million. But that was due to big write-downs from its New Zealand supermarkets business as the NZ economy struggles with recession. But the supermarket giant's pricing power was evident in Woolworths' underlying profit, rising by 2.5%, helped along by an above-inflation average increase in food prices of 1.3%. Woolworths chair Scott Perkins praised his CEO during the results announcement. I do first want to acknowledge Brad's contribution. Whilst he remains firmly in the seat and charged with delivering our full-year results and working with Amanda through to the beginning of September, it's natural to reflect on what he's achieved and it has been remarkable. But the cost of groceries at Woolworths and Coles has drawn the ire of the public and led to several inquiries into their pricing practices. Thomas Clark is a corporate governance expert at UTS. Well, he's in some fairly embarrassing circumstances. Woolworths has made a a very major loss uh, this year, Uh, but also that's in the context of both Woolworths and Coles being damned by government for the oligopolistic control of the Australian retail market. That is, it's, you know, they've consistently made uh, profits because of the lack of competition. Brad Banducci's exit stage left follows the early emergency exit by Qantas CEO Alan Joyce and former RBA Governor Philip Lowe's failing to secure an extension of his term. All three resignations come after heavy and sustained public criticism. Thomas Clark says this latest example continues the honourable tradition of generals falling on their swords. But are we unfairly making these corporate leaders sacrificial lambs? Well, uh, lynch mobs uh, are not the best way to go about these things and uh, government competition inquiries are are the best way. Uh, But you can understand people's anger when the supermarkets record year after year super profits whilst people are having difficulty paying their grocery bills. And on grocery bills, will the prices you pay at the checkout fall now that Brad Banducci has announced his retirement? Well, Thomas Clark says don't count on it. I'm from the UK and the supermarket industry is leagues ahead of the Australian industry. And the duopoly breeds complacency and standardisation. And it's terrible that the, the, the regional communities in particular of Australia, but the big cities too, are, are, are typified by this boring duopoly that people really are fed up with now. The public may also be fed up with Brad Banducci's remuneration, which Thomas Clark describes as an insensitive board decision. He received a $3.79 million cash salary last year. That rises to $8.6 million if you include share entitlements and an extraordinary $24 million if both his and Woolworths' performance targets are met in full. Amanda Bardwell, who currently heads up Woolworths' digital business, Woolies X, will take over in September. David Taylor there. 
New South Wales police are still seeking a motive behind the killing of a family of three in Sydney's west. The instructor at a taekwondo studio in North Parramatta, where the bodies of a mother and her seven-year-old son were found, has now been arrested after showing up in hospital with multiple injuries. Police today said he used to teach the child martial arts. Reporter Leah Harris has been following the story. Leah, what do police allege has happened here? So police allege that um, this Taekwondo instructor, his name is Kwong Kyung Yu, um, he calls himself Master Lion. They allege that he was at that North Parramatta Taekwondo studio on Monday evening with a woman and her son, the son of which was a student of his at the studio. They allege that he murdered the mother and son inside that studio. He then left their bodies there and got into the woman's car and drove to the family home in Balcombe Hills where he allegedly then stabbed the woman's husband to death. He then later turned up to Westmead Hospital where he walked into the emergency department and he told police at the hospital that he had been attacked in a supermarket car park and that is when police began to unravel what they say actually happened in the hours before he walked into hospital. Right, so he's still there in hospital. What's his condition? He had serious stab wounds to his arms, chest and stomach. He underwent surgery in in hospital yesterday. So police have been unable to interview him for most of today and they are um, awaiting for him to be in a better condition for them to be able to properly interview him. But his arrival at the hospital then triggered the sequence of events which led police to unfortunately discover these bodies yesterday. Here's New South Wales Police Superintendent Daniel Doherty. So the consequences, as I said before, cut and, you know, it's a tragic circumstances and uh, that's where we are at the moment. The family's still dealing with the, uh, the news and the, fa- and the friends, but we believe um, there was no warnings. No, it was uh, from what we have gathered so far from talking to different witnesses. Um, uh, it was out of, um, you know, it was out of the blue. It was something that wasn't forewarned. It was nothing that could have flagged, put a red flag up as far as we understand. That's Superintendent Daniel Doherty from New South Wales Police. So seemingly out of the blue, Leah, too early presumably to work out some sort of motive. What happens now? So, as you said, police are still trying to figure out what the motive might be. They they know that this man was teaching this young boy Taekwondo, but the extent of the relationship with the rest of the family, they are still trying to figure out why this might have happened. He is still in hospital and they are expecting to charge him um, either this evening or first thing tomorrow with three counts of murder and he will likely face a bedside court hearing tomorrow. Leah Harris there. You are listening to PM with me, David Lipson. Coming up, claims underperforming super funds aren't telling their customers if they're losing money. A vote of no confidence in Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister could be set in motion as early as tomorrow, amid several major challenges facing the Marape government. The country's largest supplier of petrol and aviation fuel has effectively closed up shop, threatening the economy of the entire country. And the government is under increasing pressure to quell murderous violence like the massacre of at least 49 people in the Highlands on Sunday. Our PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston, is in our Port Moresby Bureau. Tim, there are a few issues at the heart of complaints about James Marape's leadership. Tell us, first of all, about how serious this fuel crisis is. 
Well, looking at the lines just at uh, the fuel stations yesterday, or rather the ones that were open, um, it was absolute chaos. We saw dozens and dozens of people that were lined up desperately trying to refuel. And many, you know, especially many taxi drivers and bus drivers who rely on fuel for their livelihoods were saying that this was a disaster and really they were worried about feeding their families. I mean, this is a crisis that the government has known about since at least the middle of last year. A national emergency was declared after Puma Energy, this is the country's main supplier of fuel, said that it would need to ration its supply. In a nutshell, what this is over is a long disagreement between Puma Energy and the country's central bank about Puma Energy's foreign exchange needs. Now, Puma also was banking with Bank South Pacific, one of the largest banks here, and that bank is closing Puma's accounts, effectively meaning they've got no ability to operate in the country. So in a statement, when it was saying that it needed to close down its operations, it said that it was urging the government to form a task force on this issue. Now, James Marape, Prime Minister of PNG has said that he is looking at alternatives. And while it's not entirely clear what's going to happen in the coming weeks as far as the country's fuel supply, we know that there is a serious amount of concern both in the general public as well as major business owners and the business community. We also know that law and order is a massive problem there, that the massacre at Enger on Sunday, deadly riots uh, back in January. How is the opposition, though, trying to pin these problems on the Prime Minister? Yeah, we're seeing the opposition effectively attack the PM on, on two fronts. Firstly, a lack of prevention, you know, and especially to do with the resourcing and capability of law and order in the country's police service, as well as also the response. So on prevention, with both to do with the riots in January 10, as well as also this latest massacre, the opposition has blamed the Prime Minister's lack of intelligence, saying that there should have been, or rather uh, intelligence in official capacity, that should have been received by the government. Um, as far as the response as well, I spoke to opposition leader Douglas Tomariesa, and he says the government hasn't come up with any action plan. The only plan that they've come up with is for the police commissioner to visit the Wapanamanda and the affected areas where the massacre occurred on Sunday. He said the people want swift action by the Prime Minister. So we've seen the opposition be very critical on both of those fronts. Now, in the government's defence, we have seen uh, PNG's police commissioner, David Manning, give police powers to defence personnel in the region. Um, we do also know that they are working on terrorism legislation, domestic terrorism legislation, uh, but that was first really floated in September last year after we saw dozens killed in tribal fighting then. So we know that the government has had time to act on these, uh, to act on what could be uh, measures that the opposition say um, would try to resolve some of these issues with respect to tribal fighting. So we could see movement on a no-confidence motion as early as tomorrow. What's the latest? Is James Marape likely to survive such a move? It's a million-dollar question right now. His numbers do look very solid. Um, we did see a wave of resignations following the January 10 riots, about 11 MPs, including uh, a senior cabinet minister, um, you know, and, and many of them feel that the Prime Minister has failed on many fronts. We're talking about the economy with fuel, talking about law and order as well. But uh, in PNG politics, many MPs uh, do focus on their role effectively as service providers in their electorates. 
So Michael Cabuni, is a former lecturer in politics, was saying that to deliver services, you need lots of money and it's much easier to access this pool of money if you're on the government side. So there's a strong incentive to remaining in the government and that wave that we saw after the riots of resignations hasn't really quite continued and carried across into the kind of momentum that we would normally expect to see for the Prime Minister to not survive a vote of no confidence. Mm. So we'll see if this motion occurs tomorrow. There'll be a week of voting. Many leaders go to great lengths, often financial lengths, to convince MPs to join their side. So we'll see what kind of bartering could take place next week and whether or not Marape will survive this latest motion. That's PNG correspondent Tim Swanston. The corporate watchdog has put super funds and financial advisers on notice, saying too many customers aren't being warned if they're losing money in underperforming funds. The Australian Securities and Investment Commission says a review of so-called choice super products, where a customer chooses their own fund, found transparency was not a priority and it's considering action in some cases. A broader review of the way super works for retired Australians is also underway, sparking debate about how customer data super funds should be allowed to access. Stephanie Smale reports. If you're putting your hard-earned money into a super fund for retirement, you'd want to know if that fund wasn't doing well. But the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, or ASIC, says too many people who have chosen struggling funds aren't being told about it. Superannuation funds and advisors can't just leave it up to consumers to fix these problems for themselves. They've got legal duties to make sure people know and to help fix that situation. Xavier O'Halloran is from the advocacy group Super Consumers Australia. But the message here from the regulator is that if these products aren't performing well and they haven't been over a long period of time, which unfortunately is the case for all too many of the products within the choice market, that there are obligations on these super funds and the financial advisors to do something about that. ASIC is considering regulatory action in the worst cases and the watchdog says it's not an isolated issue. With more than a trillion dollars in savings from seven and a half million Australians tied up in the so-called choice products, where a customer chooses their own fund. Super is in the spotlight at the moment, with the federal government investigating how to improve the way it works for retirees. Misha Schubert is the chair of the industry lobby group, the Super Members Council of Australia. So we're really keen to see an even stronger focus in the public policy discussion on making you know, that part of the system work even more effectively for that growing wave of Australians who are coming through into their retirement years. So making it simpler, easier in ensuring there's flexibility in that system so people can make the right choice for them. So what would that look like? Nearly 700,000 Australians are due to retire in the next five years. Misha Schubert says super funds need to know more about their finances before they stop working to help them make the right super choices. If uh, we were to move to a system where a super fund member could give permission for those pieces of information to be drawn together, for the government to say this is what someone's eligibility is for the pension, the super fund could put that information together with uh, the amount of super and the super product someone is in and give them really um, uh, you know, strong advice around um, so they can make the best possible choices around the income they want to draw out. The risk management experts or actuaries that work with superannuation funds agree more information would help. 
Tim Jenkins from the Actuaries Institute Australia argues it's a win-win. The proposals that people are putting forward isn't necessarily saying that a super fund can just go and get that data. It's saying with members' permission, you can access the data and hence provide better help, guidance and advice to the members concerned. National seniors agree people need advice, but not from super funds. They want free, independent guidance offered to people about to retire. Xavier O'Halloran from Super Consumers Australia says handing more data to super funds is a dangerous move. He argues it would make it easier for them to convince customers to stay when they retire instead of shopping around for the best option. That will have catastrophic impact on competition in the market because we'll see people will never leave. They'll offer up the kind of product offering that they've got available and not work hard to attract new customers through lower fees or better returns. He's encouraging Australians who are about to retire to look around for the best product. A study out of the UK from the consumer body there found that people who shopped around for a retirement product, they stood to uh, increase their retirement income by up to 20%. That's a life-saving amount of extra income. And that's Xavier O'Halloran from Super Consumers Australia ending Stephanie Smale's report. The average Australian buys 56 new items of clothing every year. As a country, we send 200,000 tonnes of clothing to landfill annually. Now the fast fashion industry, as it's called, has been warned. The federal government is considering a mandatory levy on the sector in an effort to reduce the waste. Similar schemes are running in countries including France and the Netherlands, but experts say clothing landfill is not just an industry responsibility. Aussie shoppers need to shift their mindset too. Here's Rachel Hayter. Sydney's Pitt Street Mall is almost always crammed with shoppers decked with bags full of new clothes. 19-year-old Sophia tries to be thoughtful with the garments she no longer wants. I always give my clothes to my younger sister and then once it goes through her, we give it to Vinnie's or our younger cousins. But she doesn't like second-hand clothes. No, just because I feel like that's not really my type of fashion. But it is trending now. I mean, I might start. 47-year-old Lauren goes for quality over quantity. I try to avoid fast fashion because I'm very conscious of the value per wear. And so I really don't like the idea of just wearing something once and throwing it out. And this man has no qualms about op shopping. Anyone can be fashionable in recyclable clothes. I travel a bit in my caravan. I look at op shops. If I find something suitable, I buy it. Further south, on Crown Street in Surrey Hills, there are op shops aplenty. Lisa volunteers at Knopf's. It's her job to sort through the increasing number of fast fashion items being donated. We can't even sell it. It's that unwearable. A lot of it's bought online and it's so cheap, people don't think twice about it. Everything about it is just rubbish. Lisa's customers appreciate the selection on offer here. I find brand new things and I get retail therapy out of it for $5. Couldn't be better. Fashion bargains that won't be added to the 200,000 tonnes of clothing sent to Australian landfill every year. 
That statistic has prompted the Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, to put the industry on notice. Those leggings that you hope you're wearing when you're exercising to live longer, well, the leggings will outlive you by many centuries, about 500 years for some of those synthetic fabrics to break down. And landfill is only part of the problem. The fashion industry is responsible for more carbon emissions globally than aviation and maritime transport put together. The federal government is warning the industry if not enough companies sign up for a voluntary sustainability scheme, it'll become mandatory. The Seamless Initiative proposes that for every garment placed on the market in Australia is a four cent levy. Professor Alice Payne is Dean of the School of Fashion and Textiles at RMIT University. That four cents is paid into an independent organisation. That organisation um, then has the fund. It would be up to 36 million a year if a good proportion of the market signed up. That fund then funds the key activities that can help create a circular economy and keep clothing out of landfill. Those activities include supporting circular clothing design, encouraging consumer behaviour change, enabling recycling systems and amplifying clothing rental and repair programs. It's hoped the scheme will divert as much as 60% of clothing from landfill by 2027. But industry reform is just part of the solution. Glenn Rollison is the co-director of RB Patterns in Victoria. He says it's important to convince shoppers to buy clothes that will last longer and avoid cheap mass production. My role, I'm seen as a dying breed in Australia. Yet in Europe, we're celebrated. We've lost that culture of making here in Australia. We've become a culture of consuming. He wants shoppers to put value over price. We're working with brands that are still making T-shirts that are very accessible, Yes, they're not $6, but when they're touched by 35 pairs of hands, they should be about $42, and I think that's OK. And he has some ideas about how to change consumer behaviour, like inviting people behind the scenes, as the food industry does. You go to a restaurant, you see how things are made, you appreciate the skill, you're amazed at how someone can cut an onion. That kind of respect isn't given to people who are cutting fabric and sewing it. So bringing in that idea of how to show people a value system and to show people things take time, that many people touch this, that there's care and skill. The federal government says it's monitoring the fashion industry and will decide whether to intervene after June. Rachel Hayter there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us here on PM. I'm David Lipson. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. As the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches, Russian soldiers have captured the city of Avdivka. So as the war enters its third year, is there really a chance Ukraine could still win? Today we speak to a Ukrainian woman in Kyiv about what life looks like now and a military analyst on what to expect next. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.